could start my day with the president of uh, MGM Grand, Gamal Aziz. I would do his hair, right? And I could end my day with a girl that worked at the chicken ranch as a call girl. And what I said was, once I put the cape on, it was what I call the great equalizer. Everybody that sat in my chair paid the same price and deserved the same respect and time from me. Moments with Puzz, brought to you by Get Your Ass to Work, something that everyone can enjoy. Now on to the show. All right, guys, welcome back to the podcast. Today we have a good friend of mine, business owner, entrepreneur, husband, father of five, five kids. He is the owner of the Paul Mitchell The School Reno here in Reno, Nevada. Today we're bringing him in to talk a little bit about his journey from getting started cutting hair, opening and operating a business, and where he's taking it in the future. You're a big dude, man. I mean, look, you were not the guy when I met you at the gym at 4.45 in the morning doing deadlifts that I expected to say, I cut hair, all right? You're 6'3", 280 pounds. You got to tell us, how'd you get your start? How, where did you grow up, and how did you get into doing hair? Doing hair was never in the deck of cards for me. It was never something I expected uh, to be a profession. Even when I went to beauty school, it was actually only supposed to be a means to the end. I grew up in Temecula, California, which is Southern California. Um, I'm one of five kids myself. Not only do I have five kids, I actually am one of five kids. And we did not have a lot of money growing up. In fact, my mother was a real estate agent. My dad was a contractor. And I lived in 18 houses by the time I was 18 years old. Wow. Um, They actually flipped homes before we even called it flipping homes. My mother would find a fixer-upper. She had my dad's contracting license, her three boys for free labor. And we would find a house that was always not the greatest house. We'd move into it. And while other kids had after-school chores like, you know, making their beds or doing dishes, I had things like sheetrocking, doing rough electric, and then landscaping. And by the time the house would be, you know, nice and suitable and, and, and great, my mom would sell it for a profit, hopefully, and find another house to move in and do the same process over again. And so one day I counted, and she didn't believe me, and it was 18 houses by the time I was 18 years old. So that was, that was really my, my childhood growing up was I did move a lot. Um, sometimes it's to a new city. So I mostly grew up in Temecula, but I also was born in Ukiah, California, lived in San Jose, uh, Phoenix, Arizona, Mesa, Arizona, and Temecula, California. Um, but it was really in Temecula where I first got introduced to doing hair. Now, I'm a child. I was born in the late 70s, but I grew up in the 80s and the early 90s is really my childhood experience, which is notoriously bad hair. Now, we didn't think so at the time. It was cool as hair as, as can be, but in, in retrospect, it really was bad hair. And I was actually a big fan of like Vanilla Ice and MC Hammer. I thought they were really cool. And my oldest sister was dating a guy that was uh, biracial. He was half black, half white. And he would come over to my, my, my house and use my mom's clippers and cut his hair and all his friend's hair. And he actually cut my hair several times. Well, he was doing what they called the V in the back of the neck. It was really popular in the 80s. Like you do a fade and it would come down to a point in the back of the neck. I remember that. And yeah, <laughs> he asked me one day if I could clean it up for him. And I remember I was so excited because his name was Tyrone. We called him Ty. 
And I was so excited. I idolized this guy. He played on a high school football team. So my sister was six years older than me. He was two years older than her. So, I mean, he was eight years older than me, a football star. And I'm here, a fifth grader. And I was playing Pop Warner football. So I just wanted to be like Ty. So when he asked me to do his hair, I mean, I took my time. It was probably the longest haircut I ever did. But when I was done, he made a big deal about it. He was like, that is the best haircut I've ever seen in my life. I was like, yes. And that I, was your first haircut? my first haircut, and you're yeah. in fifth grade? Yes, fifth grade. So I was so excited about it, I grabbed my little brother, who's in third grade. I sit him down, and I give him a haircut, and I put MC Hammer or Vanilla Ice lines right on the side of his head. <laughs> Those which, were the lines, the three lines yep, that were the three on lines. the side of your head, right? And it wasn't until I was done with the haircut, it dawned on me, oh my gosh, when my mom gets home from work, I'm going to be in so much trouble. So I was actually worried about it. She finally gets home because she was the one cutting her hair. She would cut my hair, my dad's hair, my brother's hair. And she came home, and I was so worried I was going to get scolded. She looked at the haircut and asked my little brother, do you like it? He said, yeah. Asked me if I like doing it. I said, yeah, it's kind of fun. She said, fine. She said, I don't really care about it. I don't love doing hair that much. Feel free. And that's how it started. I started cutting my little brother's hair. Um, eventually started cutting uh, my friend's hair. Uh, I have cut my dad's hair. Um, I was on the football team in high school, and I started cutting everybody's hair. And I think the big one was my freshman year in high school. Remember the movie uh, Major League? Yeah. So <laughs> Charlie Sheen. My buddy wanted yeah. the wild thing. Remember his haircut in the back? Yeah. My buddy wanted the wild thing. He was the pitcher for our freshman uh, baseball team. So I gave him the wild thing, and he ended up pitching a no-hitter. And you know how superstitious uh, baseball players were. Next thing you know, I'm giving everybody this, this haircut on the baseball team my freshman year in high school. And that was really where I started thinking, hey, I'm pretty good at this. So I just kept cutting hair on friends, cousins, uh, people that I played football with. Yep, yep that's it. And um, that, that's what I did, but I never thought about the profession. Just, I was a guy with clippers that was cutting people's hair for free. You know, it was a, it was a, f a fun thing to do. Uh, years later, I moved to upstate New York. I'm living in Buffalo, New York, and I'm living in an all Puerto Rican neighborhood. Now, this was new to me because growing up on the West Coast, we have like, we believe like it's a melting pot. We don't segregate, right? Yeah. You move to the East Coast and all of a sudden, not only do they segregate, they're okay with it. Like they have boroughs, right? And I actually like, like you have the Puerto Rican borough, you have the Irish borough, you, you have the arts borough, like you have all these different, like the Italian borough and people just decide to live in their boroughs where they live, right? Well, I moved right to the Puerto Rican neighborhood called LaSalle Park. So I'm living in LaSalle Park and I'm obviously not Puerto Rican. You know, I'm about as, I'm Danish. I'm about as white as it comes. And I, one day I, I was talking to a guy that my neighbor I made friends with. He saw me cutting my roommate's hair out on the porch. He asked if I could cut his hair. I said, yeah, I cut all kinds of hair. And there it was called a New York fade, which is like a skin fade up. And when I did it, he was like, he was so impressed, like, oh, that's so tight. So next thing you know, I started cutting all these people's hair in the neighborhood. And the best part about it was it gave me some clout. I could walk anywhere in LaSalle Park, right? And people would be looking like, what's this fool doing? They say, hey, hey, don't mess with him. He cuts me up. <laughs> so they start protecting they you they in actually the neighborhood. Started, yeah, I, I got a yeah. little bit of street cred. Uh, uh, hey, that's there. my boy. Yeah, yeah don't real. mess with him. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he's doing my hair later today. So, so yeah, so I actually, I, felt, I didn't feel untouchable in the neighborhood, but I felt pretty good in the neighborhood. And uh, long story short, I, I went to a, bar, uh, a beauty school because I couldn't afford to get my hair cut. And I was trying to grow it out, right? And I didn't know how to deal with it anymore. So I thought I'd go to beauty school. Well, when I went to this beauty school, I started asking them questions. Now, I didn't know this at the time, but uh, cosmetology is a state-regulated thing. So every state has different requirements. So I started asking this girl, just like, I'm talking to her. I said, hey, so what's it like being in beauty school and how long you've been doing it and how long does it take? And when she told me it takes um, 1,000 hours, which is six months if you go full-time, it was literally like the clouds parted above me and the, the sun shined down. And it was like, whoa, because I could do anything for six months. I had already tried college and failed. 
And I thought, you know what, if I go to beauty school for six months, I could become self-employed. Uh, one of the reasons that I failed my first attempt in college was I was working a job cleaning carpets. And my boss would always call me and, and add on jobs. So this was back one of the first Motorola cell phones. Back when they had a walkie, I mean, it was a big brick. And I thought it was so cool, but he would call me in the middle of the day and be like, hey, Doug, I got another job for you. And I would say yes, and I would, I would fail to tell him that, hey, I had a class that night. And so I missed my classes, and I, I, so I basically failed my first semester in college. So I thought to myself that if I was self-employed, then I could actually go back to college and have a little bit more successful run in it. Because when I grew up, that's what you're supposed to do is go to college. So I moved to Las Vegas, Nevada, which is where my, so I left New York, moved to Las Vegas, Nevada, which my family was at. And I enrolled in a beauty school called Rollers Academy of Hair Design. And it was ghetto. <laughs> like, not, not kind of like, it was like, when I walked in, the girl was on the phone, and it was, you could tell it was a personal phone call at the front desk. She had long, long nails, total like ghetto makeup. And, she, and I said, excuse me, my name is Doug. And before I could finish, she says, psst, rude. <laughs> and so I tried to interrupt again. I said, I'm actually here for a tour. She said, psst, phone, rude. <laughs> so she hangs up. She's like, what can I do for you? And I'm like, um, I'm here for a tour. So when I went on my tour, it literally lasted five minutes. And it was everything cliche about what I thought about the industry. It actually, it hadn't been redecorated since the 70s. It still had the orange and brown decor. It, had a, it actually had a shag, a throw rug in the front. So it was, it, was just this, it was not a pretty place, but I didn't know what to expect. And this is what I expected from a beauty school. So my tour lasted a whole five minutes. They said, this is the clock. This is uh, the clinic floor. Do you have any questions? And I said, no. And I enrolled, actually. I signed up. I was working at the uh, hotel, uh, Golden Nugget Hotel and Casino and at Trader Joe's full time. So I was working 80 hours a week. And I decided that I quit my Trader Joe's job and just replaced it with beauty school. So I was going to keep working my graveyard shift at the, at the Golden Nugget, which was 11 o'clock at night to 7 in the morning. And I would shower there because they have a, a good place to shower. And I'd go right to beauty school because it was a friend of mine who was also going to beauty school there, that I, a coworker. So I decided that I'd go to um, the Rollers Academy. And that's when I told my parents, you know? And I was actually nervous to tell my parents because I knew exactly what was going to happen. My dad's a contractor, and my dad is about as macho as he com it comes. In fact, my dad, when he would introduce me, it wouldn't be like, oh, this is my son. Or anything. He'd say, this is my son. He plays football, and he kicks a ass. Like, and then he'd spit. <laughs> I mean, when I say he was manly, I mean, he was a manly man. And so I was, he, he loved that I was his most manly son, actually. My two brothers are also, they're great guys, but I mean, I was the one that played football. I was the one that dated the head cheerleader. I was like the... So he kind of lived to me vicariously. Um, so when I went to tell my mom and dad that I was going to be a, go to beauty school, I got the exact opposite reaction I thought. My dad sat there quietly while my mom freaked out. And the reason why that's odd is my mom is the calmest person, the nicest person, and the most supportive mother you ever met in your life. In fact, I once wanted to have a start an ostrich farm because I watched this thing that's the, it's the meat of the future. And she says, Douglas, how can I buy your first egg for you? You know, so she, I mean, she is supportive. So here she is. I tell her I want to go to beauty school, and she just is like hits the wall. What do you know about hair? What are you going to do at beauty school? So, and she's like, I know you can cut men's hair, but there's more to it than that. And she just goes on and on and on. My dad sits there calmly and quietly, and I'm just waiting to get it from him. He finally pops up, and he says, Margie, Margie, be quiet. He says, Douglas, you're good with your hands. And he knows that because we work construction together. I've worked construction my whole life with my father. He says, Doug, you like to talk to people. I think you'll be an excellent hairdresser. 
my mom and I jaw hit the floor. I thought my dad was smoking crack because this was <laughs> not the ex- expectation you, you would get from him. And um, he, we later on found out the reasons why was because he never wanted to be a contractor. His dad was a contractor. Uh, his two brothers, my uncles, are contractors. And his, great, his grandfather, my great-grandfather, Hans Peter, was a carpenter in Denmark uh, who, when he um, migrated here to America, was a carpenter. And in fact, it goes all the way back in my family in Denmark because it was a trade. They're all carpenters, like sawdust is in our blood. My dad did it because it was a family thing, not because he liked doing it. And so that was number one. And number two was, we found out later on that his neighbors in Las Vegas were hairdressers. And he had built a relationship with the husband over there and the wife. They actually were married. They owned a salon together. And they actually had just sold and retired and were actually very well-to-do. So he had already figured out that you can be straight and that you can make a good living by getting to know his neighbors. And so uh, they began supporting me in this idea. But my mother said, if you're going to go to beauty school, you're not going to go to the Rollers Academy because it's not the best school. And so she did what she always does, which is she asked everybody on the planet. And when I say everybody, I mean everybody. Yeah, she, she asked me twice. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> she, like, I mean, she would ask the lady in the grocery line, my son is six foot three, and he's a big guy, and he wants to go to beauty school. What do you think? I'm like, Mom, this is not in their business. You're just buying groceries. So she eventually asked a coworker that said, his, his childhood friend he grew up with owned the best school in the United States, and it was a Paul Mitchell school, and it was in Provo, Utah. So when my mom came into, and I remember this is before Google, so you couldn't just go online and Google something. So when my mom came and told me that th- there was a Paul Mitchell school in Provo, Utah, and I had to go there, I was like, Mom, I'm not moving to Provo. Because the truth is, she didn't like the girls I was dating in Vegas, so I just thought she wanted me to go up there and marry a Mormon girl, or two or three of them. But it, shh. Yeah. Big love. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> um, so after a lot of convincing, I finally decided that I'd go up there and check it out. And when I got there to check it out, uh, I went to the Paul Mitchell School. It's called Paul Mitchell School Provo. And the moment I walked in, it was a different experience. In fact, the girl at the front desk was not on the phone. She was just sitting there attentively. And she says, how may I help you today? I said, I'm Doug. She says, oh, we've been expecting you. <laughs> like, it was actually almost eerie. So says, Douglas, why don't you sit down and fill out this, she gave me a questionnaire. Fill out this questionnaire, and Monica will be right with you to give you your tour. Monica came out, I remember her name, Monica. She came out to give me my tour, and my tour lasted for a whole hour and 15 minutes. So I went from my five-minute tour in a Rollers Academy to an hour and 15-minute tour in a, the Paul Mitchell School Provo. And Monica spoke about everything in the first person. This is our clinic floor, Douglas, where someday you will cut and color hair. <laughs> Douglas, this is our wash house, where someday you will shampoo and give a spa-like massage. Douglas, this is our drinking fountain, where someday you will drink when you are thirsty. It was, it was a funny experience, but I knew just minutes into my tour that this is where I wanted to go to school. Uh, but the big seller for me was about every five minutes, some little girl um, would run up to me and be like, are you going to go to school here? And I'm like, yeah, I'm thinking about it. Like, you should, because you'll be amazing. So these People didn't even know me, but they kept telling me how amazing I was going to be if I went to school there. And so uh, I decided to, you know, on the drive back to Las Vegas, which was about a five-hour drive, that, okay, this is what I'm going to do. So I already started making plans to, you know, cancel my lease in my apartment, give notice to my, my, my boss at work, and uh, start making arrangements to move to Provo and go to beauty school. Um, the big catch was I had discovered that my original plan was six months in New York. And uh, Nevada, it was 1,800 hours, which is 800 hours more than New York. So it was going to take me 11 months. Well, in Utah, it was 2,000 hours. So I went from six months to 11 months to, to 12 months. Damn. Um, but still, even with this kind of obstacle in my way, I decided I'll go to school. There. I, could, I could live in Provo, Utah for a year. Well, I went there, and it completely changed my life. 
Like I, I went there with the intentions of going to college. By the time I graduated from Palmetto School Provo, I wanted nothing more than to be a hairdresser the rest of my life. Um, I was right, I mean, everything about it was great, but it was the big moment was right before we graduated, right before I graduated, uh, I got invited to go to a hair show. We were, we were invited to do a student presentation at, at this big hair show for Paul Mitchell in Las Vegas, Nevada. It's called Signature Gathering. And I went there and this hair show was amazing. Now, like a lot of young kids, I had big dreams of either playing in the NFL or being in a rock band. Uh, Metallica is my favorite band ever, and I loved Guns N' Roses growing up. I wanted to be the next James Hetfield or Axl Rose. Um, <laughs> but unfortunately, I can't play the guitar or sing, so I mean, where does that leave you? Doing hair. Exactly. <laughs> so uh, the, the last act, like the finale, just like a rock concert, this guy comes on stage, but he doesn't just come on stage. The stage goes dark, and a fog machine starts rolling in. And all of a sudden, you hear a didgeridoo. If you know what a didgeridoo is, that is Sterling Schmidt. Yeah. And this guy comes on stage wearing a kilt playing a didgeridoo. And then all of a sudden, you start hearing bagpipes coming from the opposite side of the stage. And on stage, this guy comes wearing, playing bagpipes wearing a kilt. And then a whole band pops up, guitar, drums, bass, from behind, just pops up out of the stage. Boom, right? And then on walks the stage, a guy named Robert Cromings, who is the uh, global artistic director for Paul Mitchell. And he looks like a cross between Braveheart and The Matrix. He's wearing black from head to toe with a kilt, right? Yeah. And he goes on stage as a trash can. He reaches in the trash can and he grabs a beer bottle and a whiskey bottle and he breaks them. This model comes on stage and fans are blowing her hair and he starts cutting her hair with broken glass, right? This is no lie, right? And it's flying everywhere. Hair's flying everywhere. Boom. So we have hair flying everywhere, broken glass, a guy in, in, in a kilt and in, in leather. And, and I have this epiphany, like, this is who I want to be someday. <laughs> I'm like, I want to be this guy on stage cutting hair. Now, imagine this. I go back to Provo, Utah, and I tell my girlfriend, there's a didgeridoo, and there's bagpipes, and there's a band, and he reaches in a trash can, and he starts breaking glass and cutting hair, broken glass, and it's flying everywhere. He looks like the Matrix and Braveheart, and, and I, want to be, I want to be a hairdresser. Um, I'd be thinking, uh, Doug, are you on drugs? That's actually the first thing she asked me. <laughs> She's like, did you do drugs while you were in Las Vegas? That was the first question she asked me. I said, no, no. I said, this is, I said, this is what I want to do. She broke up with me. <laughs> uh, it was funny. Um, but the good news is we got back together. Uh, we got married. We got five kids. Um, but, but it was such a shocker to her because when she met me, I was going to beauty school to go to college and get a normal job. And this event completely polarized and changed that. I didn't want to be normal anymore. I wanted to be the guy on stage uh, being crazy. So I ended up working for a salon in Las Vegas, um, not his salon, uh, but a different salon in Las Vegas that was known for doing hair shows, that had an artistic team. It was actually the top 20 salon in um, America, one of the top 20 salons in America, number one salon in Las Vegas called Diva Studios. And I went there because uh, I apprenticed under a guy that was on an artistic team. His name was David Bingham. And it was there that actually, I, I, not even a year into the business, I started traveling um, as, as a hairstylist. I started... So so tell me what that's like. You're, you look more like a lumberjack <laughs> I than, than you would somebody who's going to come and give you this neck massage <laughs> and talk to you for two hours about, you know, bullshit yeah. and cut your hair and make you look good and pretty. What's it like being the straight guy who is huge walking into beauty school and then transferring those skills into a real business. Now, I, I know what I never guessed it at the time, but being so different has actually been um, every single time a benefit, you know, because I'm not what you expect. I'm not the cliche. 
And, you know, in the beginning, that was hard for me. Actually, I actually did the opposite. I tried to fit in. In fact, uh, there was a period I even talked with a lisp uh, early in my career. It's like, that's super fabulous. Um, because you did I thought, that on purpose. Yeah. Okay, so you purposely spoke with a lisp I, to try I, to fit in. I did, actually, yeah. Uh, because I thought I had to look a certain way and be a certain way. And, in fact, early in my career, if you look at my first uh, six years of doing hair, I was constantly changing my image because I thought I had to look a certain way to fit in. I went through this uh, Linkin Park phase. I don't remember their first video where they had like the anime hair. Yeah. I had spiked out orange hair everywhere and I wore guy liner, uh, eyeliner for guys. And I had black fingernail polish, you know. Uh, and that's when the, like those big baggy jeans were in. I think they're called Jinkos. Yeah. I wore these baggy pants that, and, I, and I was dressed in black and I had these big giant combat boots. Um, and then later, I mean, I went through different phases. I used to have really long hair. Uh, I used to have long hair and wore it back in a ponytail. I was going for rock star, but I looked more like Steven Seagal, which is a badass. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I was constantly trying to fit in. And then it took me a, a while to realize that being me, just being me, the straight, I'm, I'm actually a relatively conservative guy, uh, bearded, six foot three, weightlifter that has five kids made me more unique and different than anything else ever could. Than all the eyeliner and all the other crap yeah. and everything else that you were trying to do. Yeah. Just being yourself was actually what was different yeah. in the industry. Well, well, for instance, I used to always joke around when I would see a picture of me on stage with other hairdressers. Number one is I, I dwarf them, just my size. <laughs> you know, a lot of the guys that are in my industry are kind of smaller guys. Um, and then, I mean, it's an old Sesame Street song. One of these things is not like the other. One of these things is, does not belong. I, that, that would go in my head. It would go on in my head because you just look at me and I was like, I was so different. And where at first that bothered me, I started to realize that it was an asset. In fact, my clients, I think Las Vegas could have been a better place for me. Las Vegas uh, embraces the macabre and the different. You know, it's, uh, Las Vegas loves alternative. So for me to be there, uh, clients... You know, they'd be apprehensive. Like, my, my, this is a true story, one of my favorite stories. You start off as an assistant um, at a salon. So when I started off as an assistant, the, my owner found out quickly that I had a background in construction. So I was asked to do a lot of things. So I, I was always taking out the trash and a lot of stereotypical guy things. But I was also doing a, a quick maintenance work all the time. Well, after I finally was allowed to do my own guests, I can still remember it was only one week I was doing my own guests. And one of the clients ran into the break room and grabbed my boss. Like, Lisa, Lisa, you got to come out here right now. So she brings Lisa on the clinic floor and she points to me and says, your janitor is doing somebody's hair. <laughs> the lady had this whole time thought I was a janitor because every time she came in, she saw me taking out trash or saw me uh, fixing something. She had no idea. And then when Lisa told her that I was a hairdresser, number one, the client was embarrassed, but she was intrigued. She was like, he's a hairdresser? And, you know, I got to know this client and actually I would do her hair whenever Lisa wasn't available. And I had lots of instances like that where they would come in at first and be like, I can't believe you're a hairdresser. Well, then they got to tell their friends. Because the friend was like, oh, I love your hair. Oh, you won't believe the guy that does it. The guy that does it is six foot three and he's this big straight guy. And they'd almost have to come in and see it for themselves. Like, no way, your hair looks that good and he's a six foot three straight guy? I got to see this. And so it really actually ended up being a benefit. And it took me a long time to see that, but it really, it's benefiting my whole career. That's really interesting because the thing that catches me the most about that story is that you're actually really, really good at cutting hair. So you have a skill. You've been doing it since you were, what, in fifth grade, <laughs> yeah. but you had an amazing skill. So not only did you look different, but you had this skill 
and nobody cared what you looked like. They just wanted a great haircut and maybe a little bit of circus entertainment at the same time because they wouldn't expect this lumberjack guy to be the one doing the hair. Yep, that's ex- I mean, that's exactly it. Is that, uh, my, my mentor, her name is Vivian McKinder. She's actually, if, I mean, if you're listening to this podcast, look her up. She actually is considered the greatest female hairdresser in the world. And she actually, in my opinion, is, is just the greatest hairdresser, not just female hairdresser. But she always says you're only as good as your last haircut. And, that's, and, and that sticks with me because it, it, at the end of the day is um, all the gimmicks and all that are great. But if you can't deliver and do good hair, then that's all that matters. And it also is it's a very stressful thing being a hairdresser because styles change and um, techniques change with those styles. And the longer you do hair, you got to be really good at a, a variety of things. So a key to the success of my career was I've always been a student. So I've actually been taking classes um, since my very, very beginning. And in fact, that's what got me to be a platform artist was I was too broke to afford the classes. But when you're a part of the team, you get free classes. So when I started an industry in 2000, and I'm sure you guys don't remember this because men don't notice, but the women listening will notice, is pin straight hair was the, all the rage. It was, called a, it was called a choppy bob. And so basically all I had to do was flat iron hair really well be able to cut a straight line and then chop it up with what they call point cutting. Well, I got really good at that. I got really great at that. But this is, this is a thing about women and women's fashion is women love change and they always want the opposite of what they have. So if they have pin straight hair, they want curly hair. So the very next look after that was uh, basically the Kim Kardashian hair. And I remember being mortified because I had just gotten excellent at doing flat, bone straight, shaggy hair. And now we're moving into this full, luxurious hair. And, and it was my first experience as a hairdresser where I, I quickly realized, hey, I gotta take classes and be good at everything. So I had to quickly learn how to be excellent at this new technique. And, and that's what I did. I, I, I bury myself in it. I devote myself to learning the new technique and being really good at it. And that's really what kept on happening in my career is yeah. if you can't deliver the goods, they're going to stop coming to you. That's amazing because what I hear from most entrepreneurs and business people that are ultra successful or on their way to being successful, it's that they never stop learning. They have to. You have to evolve. And it's the people who quit evolving that end up without a job shortly after. And it's the same way in real estate where there is a certain style of doing business, certain types of business, which we call normal market, conventional sales. And then all of a sudden the real estate market will shift. Now you've got short sales and foreclosures and all kinds of different problems to deal with. Right now we're in a shift where we've gone from, it's a hot seller's market where the sellers are in control in a two month span. Now the buyers are coming back into control. And if you don't know how to make that transition or you don't start putting the pieces in place, you're going to be out of business real soon. So moving, moving your career along, you've been in Las Vegas and now at which point do you decide that you're going to open up a school? How, how do you go from being awesome at cutting hair to becoming a business owner and instructor for other people who are going to cut hair? So uh, my transition into being a business owner and entrepreneur is not as glamorous as you might think. In fact, I, uh, I often think of this. It rarely is. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, people think that, you know, there's all this money flowing everywhere and, and it's some hard shit. So let's. <laughs> well, I, w- I was actually quite frankly, perfectly happy in Las Vegas. Um, I was this, I was, a, I was ca- called a master stylist. And that's just a arbitrary name that our boss gave us. 
But I started off as what they call a prima donna apprentice, and I, I was now a master stylist, which meant that I charged more money. I had two assistants. Um, my wife and I had just bought our second home in Las Vegas, and it was, uh, as far as we were concerned, a dream home. We had two kids. And it was this beautiful, like a 3,000 something square foot semi-custom home that we, we got to pick all the finishes for. And we were really doing great. Uh, we loved everything about it. In fact, I had, I had no dreams or ambitions of, of owning my own business. I was perfectly happy. Um, but I was feeling like I hit a glass ceiling with my career path. Uh, not, not necessarily behind the chair in the salon, but with what I was doing as an educator on the road. The team I had originally joined was called the Paul Mitchell Advanced Academy team. And when you join a team, you get separated and you have to pick a discipline. I joined the cutting team. So in our industry, you could be a hair cutter, which is what I was, a hair colorist that deals with the more chemical side of the industry, or somebody that does a style, which is going to be like upstyles, wedding hair, stuff like that, right? And they, there's three different teams. Now, because of the surge in men's, there's also a men's team. But I, jo I joined the cutting team. Um, and when I first joined this team, it was, it was amazing and awesome. But somewhere along the line, our, our ambition, our goal, our objective as a team changed from talking to the public, which was going to be, and our public was the hairdressers, like at salons, to we were now training schools. Because Paul Mitchell, the school, had gone from just the two schools. When I graduated, there was a school in Provo, Utah, and a school in Costa Mesa that exploded. And now we had over 50 schools in the United States. We were the f one of the fifth fastest growing franchises in the United States. Uh, we actually were in Franchise Magazine. We were just amazing. And my, my team was recruited to start training the staffs at these new schools. So I went from training salon stylists to training um, educators at schools. And, and I was really enjoying it. I loved it. But they stopped giving me certain opportunities. And when I finally questioned them, they said, Doug, you're our only educator and that's, that doesn't live by a school. So my team was national. They lived everywhere. And everybody else on my team had a home-based school. So there was no school in Las Vegas. And so I couldn't go visit a school um, one day a week like all the other guys could. So they were getting opportunities I didn't. They said, Doug, you can't understand what it's like to be in the school, to talk to these school educators because you're not in a school. So I, I thought to remedy this would be really simple. And then this was going to sound sad. I said, well, if I, if I can't move because I love my clientele and I love my house, I'll just open a school in Las Vegas. So I went to Paul Mitchell headquarters in Costa Mesa. I sat down with the franchise consultant and I said, I want to open the school in Las Vegas, Nevada. And if you give me the opportunity, I'll get it done in one year. Now I was 27 years old. I knew nothing about business, but at this point I had very wealthy clients. In fact, I had clients that, um, one of them owned the, the Imperial Palace. And I thought, you know, with my connections that they would, they would help me finance it and I get it open and running. So the franchise specialist said, Douglas, I got bad news for you. You can't open the school in Las Vegas because somebody has already spoken for that territory and it's already in the works. But if you're really serious about this, you can open the school in Albuquerque, New Mexico or in Reno, Nevada. Well, I thought to myself and I said, well, I have a license in Nevada and I've seen Reno 911. Let's do <laughs> Reno. <laughs> And, and that was really about, and I actually, I, I had to pay a large sum of money and I had to sign a contract and that was really at 27, that was my, how I became a franchise owner. At 27 years old, you decide to stomp into Paul Mitchell Corporate and say, I want this school and I'm going to open it up here in Las Vegas. Yes. And, and this is where ignorance is bliss because the truth is with what I know now, 
I would never do that. I would never be that bold and do that. But sometimes, you know, being ignorant is, is great. And this was one of those opportunities, being young and dumb was in my favor in hindsight. Um, so I did. I went in there, and I still remember the phone call to my wife. I didn't even discuss it with my wife. I called her up, and I said, sweetie, I, I, did, I, I, I spent a little money today. And she's like, you didn't buy another pair of scissors, did you? Like, because they're expensive. And I said, no. I said, you might want to sit down. I said, I bought a franchise. <laughs> <laughs> and not only did my wife not divorce me, which I thought she would, uh, she actually said she believed in me and trusted me. And that was a big deal to me. So that was how I began. Um, and with the process, I actually had three different business partners. Uh, my original business partner was a client of mine that wanted to open a salon together. And I went to this franchise seminar and I heard this, 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 this statistic. And it said that the average salon in America is lucky to turn a 10% profit. Well, right now, schools are turning a 30% profit. I didn't even know what that meant. I really didn't know what that meant. I didn't know that what percentage of profit meant, but all I knew was 30 was better than 10. <laughs> so I tell my, my, my client, my friend, I said, look, instead of opening a salon that makes 10% profit, we could open a school that makes a 30% profit. Now, my, my client who wanted to open a salon was already a business owner. Him and his wife just wanted to open another business, and they saw me as an opportunity. So when I told him 30%, he got excited. So I knew I said something right. And that, that was my first business partner. He uh, eventually called me and had to back out uh, because he had some family issues going on and whatnot. And I went through another business partner. And then eventually the third business partner was my parents. Um, I had never discussed this with anybody. The only people that knew I was opening a franchise was my wife, myself, and uh, Paul Mitchell Franchise. Um, my mom and dad, uh, we were at dinner one night with uh, my siblings. They're asking me questions about you know, what, my career. Now, I was doing great. I was making lots of money. I was making a six-figure income. Uh, my, my, we had the house of our dreams. Uh, we were doing fantastic. And so they're telling me how proud they were of me. So the next day, they called me up and said, uh, Dad and I have been talking all night, and, and we just can't believe how successful you've been with this hair thing. So I'm emotional. I should be emotional. <laughs> so uh, we want to invest in you, and we want to open a business with you. And I said, coincidentally, I already own a business. They said, what? I said, I, I bought a franchise, and my business partner just backed out. And so it was very fortuitous. Uh, so they became my business partners. Yeah. And, and it, for me, it was really emotional because, I mean, I'm one of five children. I did terrible in school. Um, my four siblings were all on GATE, the Gifted and Talented Education Program. Yeah. I was diagnosed with a learning disorder. And I think my parents would have just been happy if I would have took a, a, a medial job. If that had stayed out of jail. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and, and to not only be, to be proud of what I was doing, to be so proud they're willing to invest in me. And so they became my business partners. And so I bought the franchise at 27, became business partners with my parents about 28. And at 29, my school opened here in um, Reno, Nevada. All right. And so at 29 years old, I can't even imagine going to a new city that yeah. you hadn't been to. And I, I've never even visited Reno when I bought my franchise. <laughs> and having all that weight on your shoulders that you had to go find a location to open up get leases signed, you had to yeah. get equipment. I mean, what was that challenge like, and oh. how, how did you get through it? Um, you know what? Uh, the, the biggest one was when I came to Reno, um, so this would have been 2008, uh, this was actually before the recession, and downtown was booming. They were actually, they had a, a downtown planner, and it's when they were remodeling everything, and our original location was actually set to be downtown Reno, Nevada. And um, we were excited about it. But what happened was the uh, economy went down. The owner of that building wanted to have Paul Mitchell sign a guarantee. <laughs> and when I explained Paul Mitchell's not even a real person, I mean, it, it is a real person, but he's dead. Uh, this is, we own the franchise. The only guarantee you're going to get is from us. 
And that wasn't enough for the owner, so actually he backed out of the deal. And this was after I already had architectural plans drawn and um, I've already spent a deal of money. Um, so we were back on the market looking for real estate. And uh, we looked at another place that was promising. It was um, uh, also downtown area, uh, right next to Pegs, Ham and Eggs. And, and same kind of issue. They liked the idea of a school going in there, but they, they were just skeptical of, of us. They wanted a better guarantee. And that's when we found the building we're in now, right on the Wells Roundabout. And if you would have mm. saw it, before we remodeled it and moved in, you would never drive by that and think that would make a great beauty school. In fact, there was a chain link fence all the way around it. Um, it was the old Porsche uh, dealership, but it was it was out of business. It had broken down Porsches in the in the in the what's now the parking lot. It had a chain link fence around it. It I mean it just looked like a dump. And well, the, Midtown was pretty much a dump. It was back. A dump. Yep. Like. Uh, you know, what was this, 10 years ago? 10 years ago, yeah. And they're just developing it now. Yep. But Midtown was, wasn't was really the place to be. So the reason why we had hope was because this was before the economy died. It was a dump, but they, they had this Midtown project going on. And they were like, we're renovating Midtown. That's what we were promised. So when we talked to the owner of the building, who's uh, based, at, uh, based out of Sacramento, he has only leased car dealerships. He has a bunch of car dealerships that he owns in a, the property that he owns in um, Sacramento in the Northern California area. And in fact, he actually is the one that owned the property where the new Lexus uh, is at. And so we were one of his only two properties in Northern Nevada. The rest of his properties are in Northern California. He's never worked with anybody but car dealerships. And he was skeptical because all he knows is car dealership business. But we had to convince him, you know, that, uh, hey, we're, we're, a good, we're a good bet. And he decided to do it. But because we were a gamble to him, we got really poor TI, so we had to build it out of our own pocket. Um, so I had to get a larger um, small business loan because I, w I wasn't getting a good TI. And we, we took the chance. He gambled on us, and we gambled on the school. And so we went ahead and did it. And when it was the, the transformation was complete, um, he's actually told us several times that we we're one of his most, he's most proud of our property. Because now what was once a car graveyard is a beautiful parking lot. Um, what was an old dilapidated building is, is a nice painting with nice furniture and nice sign on it. And when you walk inside, what was once um, where they actually would work on the cars, the actual automotive um, repair area, is now this beautiful clinic area with uh, 54 stations of people doing hair. It's all done with modern uh, design, minimalist design. And it's all stainless steel, concrete, and glass. And it's beautiful. And so now you walk in, and you would never once in a million years think that this was once a, a rundown car dealership. So. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a really it's a good location, yeah. and it, of course everything's been built up around you since yes. then. Where Midtown is now a trendy, cool place to go have drinks, eat, or just walk around, and wine shops are opening up. So yeah, it's actually the place to be in Reno right now. That's really interesting. So hey, tell me about what it's like now teaching new people to do hair? I mean, what are your challenges? What, what is that job actually like? Uh, you know, because I, I've seen you on the floor, <laughs> and I know you're a very personable guy. You've got a great personality. You're very talkative. You can have a conversation with anyone, so that's probably half of it. But also, I've seen you instructing people on how to cut hair, and I can tell you're very intense. You're very involved. What's that day-to-day -day job like for you? Uh, the, the day to day is actually very difficult for me. Um, I 100% believe in what I do. I 100% think that what I do has value. Um, my staff knows this when I share this at staff meetings. There's an old saying that says, 
If you give a man a fish, you feed him for a day. But if you teach a man to fish, you feed him for life. I truly believe that we are teaching these young men and young women to fish. We're giving them a skill and a career for life, if that's what they want to do. Now, the hard part is a lot of these young students are, to be honest, kind of like me. They're not even sure if they want to be hairdressers. They're not even sure if they made the right choice. And then on top of that is a beauty school is like the perfect reality TV show, right? Um, I stopped watching reality TV after Road Rules and Real World, right? (laughs) But if you watch reality TV, you'll quickly realize that whether it's a, a, I can't even think of the names of them, Survivor or the other one where they're on a house, Big Brother, my, my mom loves Big Brother. Um, Anna's favorite. They, they, yeah, they they all have the same the same um, mo. Let's get a bunch of different people from different walks of life, put them into a building, and the drama will naturally happen, right? So you're gonna find your ob- obligatory, you know, gay guy, right? Then you're gonna find your obligatory uh, super conservative Christian girl, right? Uh, then you're gonna find the virgin, the the slut, and then you're gonna put them all in one room, and the drama naturally happens, right? And it does. And it does. So I I own a uh, a beauty school that has people of all different ages, all different walks of life, and at the end of the day is you're gonna get everybody from these categories, right? You're gonna get the really conservative Republican, right? You're gonna get the really liberal Democrat. You're gonna get people from the LBGT community. You're going to get people that are transgender and you're going to get all these different walks of life, right? And they're going to come into this school and they have to be there for anywhere from five to eight hours a day, actually, or 10 hours a day. We have a 10 hours shift as well, 10 hours a day. And the drama naturally unfolds. So I find myself on a day-to-day basis at the school is about 30% of my time is actually instructing people how to do hair, (laughs) 30 percent of, of my time is, is actually uh, instructing people how to do hair, how to how to be successful in this industry. Um, the other 70 percent has to do with one degree or another dealing with this drama. So the drama that that comes from just being a beauty school, or um, just the natural drama of being a business owner. You know, because if I'm I could be in the middle of of showing someone how to do a haircut or a color, when somebody's gonna come run up to me and tell me that the toilet is clogged. You know, and even though I have people in my school to deal with that, uh, because I'm the owner, I'm the, I'm the, and I'm so tall and easy to spot, I'm often the first person that finds out about anything that's not happening in the school as well. And so, yeah, and so that, that actually is the hard thing because I said if I could just deal with the hair, um, my job would be really easy. Um, but I don't, and I have to deal with everything else. And I think I have this really hard thing with hairdressers because, like, like I said, I don't introduce myself as a business owner. I don't introduce myself as um, an educator. When people ask me what I do, I tell them I'm a hairstylist. And I tell them for two reasons. Number one, I do like the shock value. I'll I'll be honest, I love the shock value. Right. Because I don't look like a hairdresser and it's always a shock. Um, Number two is because it's what I'm most proud of. Because becoming a hairdresser is what changed my life. I mean, it really did change my life. Um, So, but on that note, I do have a hard time because hairdressers do have a stereotype that we are airheads, that we are very worldly and, and, and self-involved, uh, involved, um, that we really aren't the, the brightest, you know, crowns in the, in, the, in the box. And so that's kind of the stereotype, I think, that comes with this industry sometimes. So I get really upset when somebody lives up to that stereotype. So when I get students at the school that live up to this drama stereotype, it's very hard on me because I said, don't prove them right. Hairdressers are smart, creative, wonderful people. 
They have a, uh, a servant's heart. We serve the public every day. Uh, we listen to people's problems. We listen to their, uh, their victories. And we celebrate them with them and we cry with them. I mean, I, I, I want to tell you, one of my favorite movies is going to sound terrible, is um, Steel Magnolias. <laughs> it's all about, at the end of the day, is the original play and the movie all took place in a, in a salon. I don't know if you know that, the original play. It's a one-scene play that takes place in a salon, actually. And it's all about the relationship that the character played by Dolly Parton builds with his family. She, wasn't just, she was there for um, a wedding. She was there for the birth of a child. And she was there for a funeral. We do people's hair on the best days of their life, their wedding, their prom, uh, their company parties, their promotions. But we also do their hair on the worst days of our life, funerals and things of that nature. We do, we do wigs for kids that are going through chemotherapy. So we are there for these really dramatic parts of people's lives. And I think hairdressers are some of the best people. You so know, when I, they live up to the drama, I get upset. I love that because... Is that something that you incorporate into your teaching when you're when you're working with people? Does it just come out? Because here's here's why I say that is because people only see real estate on TV, and they see some you know agent driving a cool car who shows somebody three homes, and then they buy a home, and then everybody's happy, and that's the end of the show. In reality, I'm working with people who are losing their home, getting a divorce friend or family member died, have no money, are, you know, some sort of really, really traumatic issues are going on. So they have to do a real estate move, but that's my life. And I'm, I'm always having to coach people. I am their psychologist. I'm their therapist. I'm the guy who answers the phone at nine o'clock at night when they're having a meltdown. They're nervous. They're scared. They don't know what's going on, but that's real, real estate, not this TV BS that you see what's happening on HGTV. And what they don't teach you in real estate school is, hey, you're going to walk into some properties and there's going to be somebody there drugged out, laying on the floor, and you're going to have somebody screaming that you have to do something to get the property sold or they're going to lose everything they have. That's real. And you don't learn that in real estate school, nor is it being taught. So it's interesting that you bring this up, that doing hair is not only a skill, but you're also really deep and personal with the people who you're working with. Yeah. Is, now, is that something that you've tried to, you try to sort of share with your students? Well, before I answer that, I will actually say this. I, actually, I, I, I do know that. My mother was a real estate agent. Yeah. And, and my mother is a very personal person. And she shared with that with me on a regular basis. Says, you know what? She was there when the economy collapsed, when the economy rose. Mm -hmm. uh, for many people, buying a home is going to be the biggest purchase they make in their lifetime. And so... If, they don't take it as a small thing. And my, my mother wore that, the weight of that on her shoulders and, and when she was practicing as a real estate agent. So I, I get that. Um, do we share it as part of the curriculum? No, unfortunately we don't. But we do give them direction to where it is. Um, I'm, I'm in a very good point um, in the spectrum of hairdressers because some of the greatest hairdressers came from the 70s, right? These were hairdressers that really changed the industry. In fact, they changed the way that the salon business is run. And now they're retiring and they're writing books and they're doing um, uh, seminars and essays. And so there's a lot of material out there about how um, we can be better as hairdressers. In fact, going back to Vivian McKinder, she has a whole series of videos called I'm Not Just a Hairdresser, meaning that we're so much more than just someone that does your hair. Um, so as far as in our personal career at school, no, it's not something that you're going to get. But if there's an opportunity to share it, there's an opportunity to explain it. 
I always look for those opportunities. Um, whenever I get a chance to work with somebody one-on-one at my school and share these kinds of things with them, I do. Because it's what's going to make them successful. Um, so I, I, it's, a double, it's a double answer right there. It's on one hand, no, it's not part of the curriculum. But two, yeah, it happens all the time. It's something you're cognitive of. Cognitive because of you're yeah. in the trenches working with people yeah. all and the time. And I, I love giving my staff specifically um, recommendations to different books that I've read that are written and published by hairdressers that can actually help them. Different stories about hairdressers that they've shared at seminars. Because that's really where this comes from, is from other people's experiences. And, and it's, it's, probably, it's, it's quite moving and powerful, actually. Hairdressers love motivational speakers. A lot of hairdressers become motivational speakers. We love hiring motivational speakers. And we love to get into a big uh, seminar and cry together. And so <laughs> um, it's kind of an emotional thing. So I actually will share it at the school. I will share my story. I will share my experiences. But... I used to do it really often in the beginning of, of my ownership at the school, but I find myself doing it one to two times a year now, and not because I don't want to. It's because it is such a huge emotional experience for me to open myself up, to, to share these things that mean so much to me with people that I can only do it about twice a year effectively. Yeah. So you mentioned something earlier that I wanted to touch on too, which is how to be successful in the industry. Because there is two sides. There's one, you have a skill mm -hmm. and you, you can be the best doctor, lawyer, real estate agent. But if you don't know how to go get a client, you're dead. You've got nowhere to go. And I think a lot of people, especially getting into real estate, all they think about is the real estate passing the test and, you know, and for, in your case, it's probably getting through the school, which is funny because on um, going on a tangent here, it takes me about three months to get a real estate license to help somebody sell a half a million dollar home, a million dollar home. You guys are cutting hair and doing nail and it takes you a year of schooling. So yeah. that's, that's kind of the funny dichotomy of, yeah. of, of that. But, um, being successful in the industry in real estate is very, very difficult because there's the skill of actually selling a home, but it doesn't matter how good you are at paperwork. It doesn't matter how good you are at your marketing. If you can't obtain a client, you're dead. You're not going anywhere. And so what I heard you say was how to be successful in the industry. What is that like for somebody who may not even know if they want to be a hairdresser or I just think I want to do it part time? Do you have those conversations with them of, hey, now you have to go out and get clients. Now you have to do a good job for somebody. What's that like? Um, you know what? There's, I, I do talk about success a lot. I do talk about how you do become successful at it. Um, Robert Cromings, the guy that was uh, the Braveheart Matrix, he said, it's not filled of dreams. Just because you build it, they won't come. You know, like um, going to beauty school and getting a license and decorating your booth or your salon and making it all pretty, those are all great things, right? But now the real challenge comes, how do I get the, the people in the door, okay? So number one, I tell everybody that graduates, and I, and, I, and I say it not because I want to scare them or I want to, you know, put the fear in them. I tell every single one of them, I said, be prepared to cry a lot your first year. <laughs> I said, that's just number one. Because your first year, you're building what you call your base clientele. Your base clientele is your clients that repeatedly come to you on a regular basis, Okay. And so that all depends on what, what kind of styles you are. So if your average booking is every six weeks, that means you would actually say clients that come to me every six weeks are considered my base clientele. 
Um, if you're doing men's hair, you might shorten that down to every three weeks because the average man gets their hair done between two and four weeks, right? And so that would be your base clientele. And so you're going to spend a whole year building your base clientele, right? What's going to happen is you're, you're going to finally start getting some clients and you're going to have a really busy week, right? And you're going to be like, oh my gosh, it was the best week I ever had. Well, then week two, three, four, and five are going to be really slow. And it's not going to be until week six hits where those clients come back again. And the key is to be busy every week. Um, and so uh, how do you do that? There's a million different ways. Number one is uh, uh, John Paul DeJoria, the CEO and co-founder of Paul Mitchell Systems says, successful people do all the things that unsuccessful people don't want to do. And it's really that simple. You see me, I'm in the gym at what time every morning? We're there at, I mean, you're there before I am, and I'm there at 4.50, 4.55 a.m. every day. Do you think I want to wake up at 4 a.m. to go to the gym? I don't want to wake up at 4 in the morning. Every morning when my f alarm clock goes off and my feet hit the floor, I actually say that quote in my head. Successful people do all the things that unsuccessful people don't want to do. I love that. So it starts, it starts with that, is be, be ready to do the hard stuff. And the hard stuff to me is simple, but it is hard. Number one is, I don't care if you work 40 hours a week or if you work 20 hours a week. The days and hours you say you're going to be in the salon, you be there from the very first hour to the very last. And here's why. This, this is a story that happens so many times. You're going to get there in the salon, and you're going to have nobody on your books. And you're going to fold foils. You're going to sweep the floor. You're going to do everything you can for eight hours going nuts. Somebody's going to walk in that door when you have finally given up and you're ready to go home and say, I want a haircut. And you got to be flexible. And what are you going to gonna, go. Yeah, what are you going to do? Are you, are you going to do that haircut or are you going to say, I've already given up and walk away? Mm -hmm. It's that haircut that walks in at seven and a half hours of being there doing nothing. That's the haircut that not only is going to love, you, love your haircut, they're going to be like, oh my gosh, you're the best. I'm going to send all my friends to you. And, and it happens so many times that it's ridiculous, but still, people go home early. People come in and see they have no one in the books, and they're like, well, I'm going to go run errands or have a long lunch. So number one is just be there. Being there because we are the customer service business. Show up. Yeah, so, yeah. Showing, so showing up would be de definitely number one. And then I also say this one is every successful hairdresser is part hustler, right? Because you got to have a hustle. Now, everybody's hustle is different. I get a little frustrated nowadays that people think social media is the hustle. I think it's one great tool, but it's only one great tool that everybody else is using. You still got to go out and, 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 and beat the bushes and try to get them. So my hustle earlier in my career was I ended up finding another young stylist. His name was Matthew Worm. We called him Big Worm, right? That really was his name, Matthew Worm. Well, we were both trying to build a clientele in Las Vegas, Nevada. Uh, we came up with a scheme, right? So we would put on our nicest outfits on our day off, and we would go to the nicest malls. And we would go to the nicest retail stores. And we would go in there, and we'd find something we like, and we would say, do you have it in black? And then we prayed, we prayed that they wouldn't because if, we couldn't afford it. But when they say, well, does it have to be black? We're like, yes, that's my dress code at work, which leads to the conversation. Well, what do you do for work? Oh, I'm a hairstylist. They're like, no way, you're a hairstylist? Yeah, I'm a hairstylist at Diva Studios, which was really a well-known uh, salon. I can't believe you work there. I've heard of that place. Well, we would take turns, and I would, if it was my turn, I would give them my card and uh, some kind of a discount. And we're taught in our industry, never discount yourself, so we discount product. If you come in for a haircut, you get a free bottle of shampoo. So they're going to walk out with a free bottle of shampoo, but they're going to pay full price for the haircut. 
And so next thing you know, I got a client, boom, right? And we would go to, and there's a lot of malls in Las Vegas. We would go to a different mall every weekend and we would do this hustle, right? And that was, that was our hustle, right? Um, that is so funny because what you call a hustle is what we call lead generation in yeah. real estate. You were out there lead generating, <laughs> trying to find clients. And I love what you said earlier, which was, you know, the things that you have to do to get clients is simple, but it's hard. And what we say is it's simple, but it's not easy. It's like, okay, you've got this 5,000 pound weight on the floor, put it on top of the table. Well, that's simple. I mean, you just lift it up, put it on the table, but it's not easy. Yeah. Right. I love that. That's, yeah. that's amazing. And, and, and so that's, and so that's that, that, if you break it down to sales, that's called a cold contact, right? Cold contacts are your least effective contact. And I understand that from a sales perspective, but just because the least effective doesn't mean you can't spend your time there. In fact, I would spend probably 50% of my time with my cold contacts, even though they have the smallest return on investment. Cause I do believe that energy creates energy. So going out there and doing that just created a natural energy. Well, then once you start getting a base clientele, now you start working on warm, warm contacts, right? These are people that actually, they already know you. They already trust you. So my early hustle was a VIP card. And I really work hard on using, not, not giving my power away, meaning you hand somebody five cards and say, hey, please send your friends. You just gave your power away. But instead I say, hey, I'm running a promotion this month. If you give me five referrals, I'll call them for you. You don't have to. I'll call them for you. And if they actually book with me, I will actually give you a 50% discount on your next service. So this way, I'm asking them to give me the contacts. So I'm not handing out my, my power. I'm, giving, I'm asking them to give me the contacts. And they trust you. They know you're not going to solicit your friends and, and say anything weird. In fact, you're offering them a, a, a good price haircut or a good price hair color, right? Or a good price deep conditioner. And, and so that was another one is I was using my warm contacts and then there's hot contacts. Oh my gosh, my friend is looking for a new hairdresser. Will you do their hair? You know? And, and th this is something that goes throughout sales, uh, no matter what you sell, cold contacts, warm contacts, hot contacts. The truth is you gotta, you gotta actually, when you get a hot contact, you gotta take advantage of it. You get a warm contact, make sure you actually build a relationship, make sure they feel trust with you. Uh, use, not use it, but try to, try to take as great advantage as you can. And then cold contacts, Never underestimate it because you don't know who you're going to get. And even though it's frustrating and you get more doors slammed in your face, figuratively, it's worth it. What's really interesting is the fact that at some point you really probably, I, I can tell by the words that you're using, you had to geek out on the sales side yeah. of how to generate business. And I think all great salespeople know that hustle and they understand, but that's what people don't understand getting into real estate, that it is a very hard hustle of going out there day after day, trying to find clients and build that repeat and referral business that'll come later. And they're just too maybe lazy. They don't have the ambition to put in that work up front in order to build that base business. And all that people see from real estate from the outside typically is that agent who sits around, maybe goes on vacation, drives the BMW and has this business just coming to them, but they didn't see the hustle, the grind and the years, the amount of time that it took to build that business. And that's the disconnect between people at real estate school and the real life real estate agent. Oh yeah. I mean, I, I, I joke around about that one all the time is, you know, I, I work 30 plus hours a week, maybe. <laughs> and my staff knows it, my students know it. I work Monday through Thursday. 
Um, my wife works on Friday, so I can stay, and it's always switch roles there. Um, and that's, that's what my students see, and that's what my staff sees, right? What they don't see is that first year of working 80-hour weeks in a salon and crying at least once, once a, a week, wondering, am I ever going to make it? Um, they didn't see my second, third, fourth year where I still work in the 80 hours a week, plus going on the road on the weekends, working for free, by the way, not, not only working for free, paying my way to be on this team, this advanced team I wanted to be on, because in order to join the team where you actually do get paid, you had to show them that you were committed. So I would literally drive my car to Las Vegas, from Las Vegas, Nevada to Costa Mesa, California, where we're headquartered out of. I had no air conditioner. I would sleep in my car. And, they event, and I'd go to, I'd go to the, the school in the morning, early in the morning, and I'd take a hooker bath, you know, pits and tits, you know. <laughs> and I would, I would I'd freshen up, and, I, and I, would, I would take the classes to be part of this team. They eventually found out I was sleeping in my car, so they graciously let me start sleeping on the floor of the corporate apartment. You know, but still, I was sleeping on a floor in a corporate apartment, and I was grateful for that floor, by the way, and a roof over my head. Um, but I still, I was paying for gas, paying for food, I can still remember being invited out to a team dinner and I went uh, deciding I put on my credit card but still not even know if it would be declined or not. And I can still remember being so gracious that the guy that was there decided to be generous and buy everybody dinner because it was a restaurant I couldn't afford. I later on thanked him when I got successful. He had no idea, you know, like that, that, how much that meant to me. Um, but yeah, they, they didn't see the hard work that went in for the first, I'd say 10 years of my career. When I opened this school up, I was everything. Um, my mother was the director. I was the education leader, the uh, janitor. I was the sales leader. I was the admissions leader. I mean, I was every role on the planet, you know, when we first opened up because I couldn't afford to hire people. It wasn't like you just opened up Paul yeah. Mitchell School and people just came in the door. You, you, would, you would hope, but no, that's not what happened. That, I mean, that's what people think is, yeah. oh, I got my real estate license yeah. now. Um, crickets are on the other end of that phone yeah. because nobody's calling you yeah. and it just doesn't happen where you just happen to get a license. You just happen to get through cosmetology school yeah. and all of a sudden you've got clients. Yeah. Right. I, I often call it, refer to the spaghetti uh, method. So if you were younger, the way to see if spaghetti uh, was done, you throw it at the wall and see if it sticks. See if it sticks. Yeah. So my joke is you just throw everything at the wall and guess what? A lot of it won't stick, but the things that stick that work. So yeah, when we came here, we did everything, you know. We, we bought booths at every single festival. You know, it was the, the state festival, the rodeo, the barbecue cook-off. Uh, they had a, a, women's, a women's festival. that we, So we bought booths at every festival. And we, we found out which ones were effective and which ones weren't. We went to every single school, every single career, career fair. Um, we were everywhere. I mean, we were every event that we could be at, everywhere we could be at. And that was not just man, that was man hours and, and an output, trying to get everybody to notice us. We've done commercials, we've done advertisement in newspapers, we've, done every, we've tried everything that you could try. And uh, luckily, we have been able to, to track what works and what doesn't work, where our return on investment is. So we've narrowed down what stuck and what didn't stick. And, and we have a formula. But what happens is when that formula is not working anymore, I got to go tell them it's back to go to the hustle. Let's just start throwing things at the wall, things we tried in the past, because maybe this time I'll have a different result. Um, you can't be scared to try anything. I tell my staff, and this is, this is I, have, I have two staffs. I'm an administration staff and I'm an education staff. But I tell them the same thing. Your job is to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. Because whether you're cutting somebody's hair on the clinic floor, you guys may not realize, but that's an uncomfortable thing. You are meeting somebody for the first time, and within seconds, you are touching them in the, the neck and the head and building that instant relationship of trust. 
Um, I'm coming at strangers with sharp objects next to ears, eyes, and other vulnerable areas. It's an uncomfortable job by nature, but our job is to be comfortable doing it. And then the same thing on the other side, my, my administration staff, whether they're dealing with disgruntled people or whether they're going out and trying to, to find more enrollments, it could be a very uncomfortable thing, but their job is to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can't even, I can't even say it any better than what you just said. And if you're coming into real estate, anyone who's listening, it is the same exact, everything you just said is spot on. You have to get comfortable being uncomfortable in real estate. And the moment you do get comfortable, you better start looking for something else to make you uncomfortable because the moment you get comfortable is when you've stopped growing. And guess what? There's going to be somebody else out there who's going to kick your ass because he's or she is willing to be uncomfortable and is going to pass you up in the business. And then you're going to be the person who's trying the same tactics that worked two years ago, now no longer work. And guess what? your business is sinking. Yeah. And I think we've all been through that before. So tell me where you're at now and where you're going. How many students do you have in at one time? How many staff members? And then you've got some exciting news about opening your second school. So the, the student business has always been, uh, it goes, it has ebbs and flows, right? So I basically, based off of how many students I enroll a year, so some years I'll have 175 students, other years I have about 125 students. Um, I have three different programs at the school. Um, and that's 175 students who come for one year, is yes. that right? Yeah. So 175 people yeah. for one year yeah. in there five days a week? Uh, six days a week. <laughs> six days a week. Yeah. And so we have, we have multiple programs and multiple opportunities for them. So we have a three-day uh, three program where they do three 10-hour days, and that's a 30-hour week. And that actually is going to go from Wednesday through Friday. We have a five-day program where they could choose to go Monday through Friday or Tuesday through Saturday. I always recommend Tuesday through Saturday because Saturday is going to be your busiest day, and it all, not just in school but also in a salon. And then we have a night school program where they actually will come actually from 5 o'clock to 10 o'clock at night. So we have to be open all the time. Um, and we also have a nail program as well that also has flexible hours. And so we have different people coming and going out of those doors at all time. And that itself is uh, its own logistical nightmare, but we make it work every day. Um, and that's very exciting. I love that. I love that we're always growing. Um, believe it or not, um, this is when we got to get creative. When the economy is good is actually when schools like mine have to get uh, more creative because when the economy is bad, people are looking for new careers. And we are a career college. And so a lot of people will, will turn to us when they get downsized or when employment is low because they could be independently employed. Uh, when the economy starts going back up, People aren't so much looking for work, so we still get enrollments, but it's mostly people that have already been planned on being a hairdressers. So you'll see that change. When the economy was down, I really enjoyed it because I got a lot of second career adults. And they are some of my favorite students because they are no drama. They are no nonsense. They've already been out there in the hustle, and they know what it's like. And they will tell these young kids how lucky they are because they worked in a job that they hated for umpteen years, and now they're doing something they love. Um, so I, that's one of the nice things about when the economy's down. Um, but then when the economy's up, like it is now, we're getting less of those second career professionals. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. So now we're focusing more on the younger college age, just out of high school age. Um, so we just got to understand that. And so we're doing heavier recruiting during this time of year in high schools and so on and so forth. Um, we are opening a new location, which I mentioned before is in, uh, we call it Palmerton School in North Tahoe. Congratulations in, on that. Thank you very much. It's in Truckee, California. Very small school. In fact, I am proud of this. It's the first micro school in all the Palmetto Network. 
Paul Mitchell has 116 schools and they're broken in three categories. Large schools, which are like uh, 20,000 plus square feet. Medium schools, which are from 10 to 15,000 square feet. That's my school's a medium school. And small schools, which are about 6,000 to 8,000 square feet. Uh, the school in Truckee, California is the smallest Paul Mitchell school. It's 3,500 square feet. It's called a micro school. And which is a, the good thing about it means it leaves less students to function properly, which also means maybe less staff. But the attention they're going to get is fantastic. To have a school that only has about 30 to 40 students at a time, we can really give them a lot more one-on-one attention. I'm actually going to be um, running it for the first year, and I'm really looking forward to spending the time with the students in a more salon type environment, where my school here is about a little bit over 12,000 square feet. Um, I do have a lot of stations, lots of students. And to be very honest, I do my best to get to know each and every one of them. But with all the comings and goings, it's hard to get to know all your students. So I'm actually really looking forward to this micro school, Paul Mitchell School in North Tahoe. That's amazing. Yeah. So if somebody were interested in getting a hold of you, if somebody wanted to sign up for your school or just needs more information about the industry itself, how can they, what is the best resource to get a hold of you and to start learning about Paul Mitchell, Reno, or Truckee? So we do live in a social media world. We actually are present on Instagram, Facebook, and we do have a website. You go to paulmitchelleschool.com or uh, paulmitchelleducation.edu, uh, and you'll actually be able to find everything you need about Paul Mitchell School Reno or any other Paul Mitchell location. For instance, if somebody's listening right now and they live somewhere else in the United States, go to the website. You'll find a Paul Mitchell School close to you. Every Paul Mitchell School is fantastic. Mine is the best, but I think they're all, they're all great. Um, and of course, always calling the school. I'm still a big believer in coming in. No matter what you could learn about us online, please come in. Because once you come in and you see it and you feel it, and that's exactly what this industry is, we're in one of the last industries that can't be done online, that can't be done virtually. You have to physically come in to get your hair cut. I recommend you physically come in to actually start your career because that's where you really will get a good vision for it. Yeah, that's great advice. Man, you've dropped so many gold nuggets here today. I mean, it has been, I've got five pages of notes just listening to the things that you've said. And I... I'm really grateful you've come in to do this interview because the understanding that I've drawn from what you do and what we do here in real estate, that it's almost universal across the business world that if you're going into business, there's going to be some hard times. There's going to be some struggle. There's going to be some hustle. There's going to be some luck involved and you have to be good. I mean, you have to, you started out because you were good with your skill that allowed you to advance. There was no laziness that came about it. You really excelled at what you did well and then moved that into a business. And what I find so hard for people in our real estate industry is that they become a business before they've learned the skill. It's almost backwards. Mm -hmm. And it's not like you've worked in a kitchen making some food for people. You got really good at cooking and you're going off to open up a restaurant. It's backwards. You get a real estate license. You're a business owner now but you haven't even completed a transaction. It's like you haven't cracked an egg yet, but you've opened up a restaurant. So just hearing what you've been through, I mean, it's it, what an amazing story. Um, we're looking forward to you opening up that school. What do you, what do you see in your future? What's your vision? Where, where do you want to take it? Um, to be very honest, my vision is so grandiose. It's almost embarrassing to share, but um, I, I follow people like The Rock and like Arnold Schwarzenegger, and they talked about the things that they dreamt from a young age. So uh, you got to say it to make it happen. Um, I actually, I really want to create a website. 
um, a hairdresser-based website is one of the things I really want to do. And I'm already actually working on a, a name and a logo for that, and hopefully that's going to happen in the next year. I would love to be back in the salon business. Um, I did the salon business once before. I used to own a salon. Um, the first time I owned a salon, it was for me. It actually had my name on it, Ethan Douglas Salon. Uh, Ethan's my son. My name's Douglas. Um, but this, I, I did a salon for me, and I think that's why actually I ended up shutting it down because it really wasn't doing what I hoped it would do. I actually want to get in the salon business again, and I would love to open a chain of salons that caters to brand-new stylists out of beauty school, helping them make that transition. Um, I would love to get into distribution of products. Um, Paul Mitchell, like all products, it goes to a distributor, and I would love to distribute products. Um, and at the end of the day, I would love to get back on the road. I loved being on the road as a hairdresser. Um, I did it. I did it for 13 years. I loved everything about it. It actually scratched an itch. It was so good for your ego. It was so good to go out and meet new people, travel the, the United States. And I want to be on the road again, but this time I want to go on the road a little differently, uh, working for myself instead of working for another company like Paul Mitchell. And so, yeah, those are just some of the things that I, I, I sit on my bed at night dream about. I love the school business. I love what I do. I believe in what I do. Um, but I just want to grow from here. I'm, I'm 39 years old. I've been a business owner for 10 years. And on some, sometimes I think that's old, but other times I think it's very young. I have a lot of profession in front of me, and I would love to do a lot more things. You get, you've got a long way to go. You've come a long way, and you've got a long way to go, and you have plenty of time to do it, which is amazing. So what advice do you have for anybody who's going to be getting into your field? What are you going to tell the new people who are coming in, people who are listening on the fence? Maybe they've already have been in the industry, failed out, and maybe thinking about coming back in, the young entrepreneurs, the young business people out there. What advice do you have for them that you could share? Um, I love quotes. And so I will just share with you probably my favorite quote. It's called the W Theory. Working will win when wishy-washy wishing won't. Working will win when wishy-washy wishing won't. The end of the day is you have no other choice but just put your head down and do the work. You know what? The best plans, the best ideas, they go nowhere without putting in the work. So be ready to work hard and, and understand what that is. So if you want to be a hairdresser, it's not because, oh, I don't like what I do and it's fun. Yeah, hairdressing is fun, but it's still a job. And you have to do the work to be successful. So if you want to own a salon, if you want to um, do hair in, in, for movies and, and, and for celebrities, there's, there's, a, there's people out there that have already done it. Find them. Ask them questions on how they did it, and then do the work. Because there's not a single person out there right now that's doing celebrities hair, that owns a successful salon, that hasn't worked hard. And I know that because I've met them, right? And so find the person that has the career that you want. Ask them questions. And in my industry, people love to answer questions. They love to talk about themselves, obviously, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, so find them, ask them the, the right questions, but then be willing to do the work. Because nobody in this industry is going to waste time on you if you make excuses. In fact, your first excuse, they're going to be done sharing their knowledge with you. And I know that for a fact. One of the reasons why every single mentor I have has let me continue to follow them and be their friends is because I didn't give excuses. I showed up and I did the work. So that's, that would be it, work. Yeah, 100%. I mean, that that's awesome to wrap this podcast up with right there. And be willing to put in the work. 
And there was a quote that we said on another one of our podcasts. It was from Chris Rock, who was, uh, he was talking about, he was on the side of the road. And he said every time he was out on the side of the road because his car broke down, he was out in the middle of the freeway waving his hands for help and nobody would stop. But if he got out there and started pushing his own car, everybody would stop to help him push that own car because people want to see you helping yourself. And if you're out there hustling and you're out there, <laughs> you're out there doing the work, there are going to be people in the industry who will help you out. And I can say for 100% that when I was getting into real estate, the people who were in the industry already were always willing to help me when I had questions, but I'd always do what they told me. And I would always show up and do that hard work and do the, the grind and the hustle that most people aren't willing to do. And I think that is right there is going to be the key to being successful, not in real estate, not in cutting hair, owning a business, but just anything. You want to be an athlete. You want to cut hair. You want to be in real estate. That was amazing, man. You know, thank you so much for coming out here today. Do you even know the name of our podcast? Nope. Did I tell you what it was? <laughs> no. no. All right. I'll listen to it now. <laughs> yeah. Well, our podcast name and title is Get Your Ass to Work. Oh, so, that's so funny. Yeah. As, as we say on this podcast, we always wrap up and get your ass to work. <laughs>